Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Uh, Family, again, kind of hard to not know what book of the Bible we're studying, isn't it, when you have a graphic that's that big? Uh, We're in the book of Mark, and uh, this last three weeks, we've been studying what what it really amounts to is eight vignettes, little small stories of Jesus Christ as he's ministering there, not only in the town of Capernaum, but in the greater Galilean area. And the point of each one of these stories is, in essence, he's the boss. Jesus Christ has authority. Jesus Christ has right to rule. Jesus Christ should be submitted to. Jesus Christ is taking ownership as the Messiah of Israel. And consequently, as you and I are worshiping this morning, he is taking and reminding you through Mark that he is taking control. And I want to suggest to you, Mark wrote this book, as we will continue to say, and sent it to the people of Rome, right in the the very backyard of Caesar himself. But the one that, that Caesar or the Roman government gave the orders and the willingness to crucify, now sends his gospel, his marching orders, and if you will, his terms of surrender to the very backyard of Caesar because he is the boss. He's the king. And so in these eight vignettes, we get to see the the authority of Jesus Christ. And, And just to give you a quick review, it's been a number of weeks now, he's going to say that his authority is with God's word. The prophets, they said, thus saith the Lord. The rabbis, they say, well, one rabbi says, and another rabbi says, but no definitive teaching. Jesus said, I say. As if we have a chance to stand and look at the very author of Scripture itself. Jesus is then going to show his authority over evil spirits. And family, it's the same authority that he's given to us, not because we're strong, but because we're submitted to he and his authority, but he only needs to say, depart. The underworld, as disobedient servants, may may defy him, but they will never disobey him. And they listen and leave. We saw thirdly that his authority is over illness. And first with with Peter's mother-in-law, he grabbed that dear tender woman, issued healing, and just like a good mom, got up and started making lunch for everybody. It went on and, and he continued to show healing later on into the evening. Then we finally have that, the, the third of these vignettes where he actually calls down 
a leper, and the leper in early stages of faith says, I know you can do this. He says, I can, and healed. Kevin continued our, our little vignettes this last week, and we saw in the healing of the paraplegic man dropped down from the roof his authority to forgive sin. See, family, he looks down and says, what's easier to say? Your sins be forgiven? Or rise, take up your bed and walk? Now, any of you sitting here today should say, well, the easiest thing to say is your sins are forgiven. There's no validation in that. But Jesus said, so that you know I have the right and the power to forgive sins. Rise, take up your bed and walk. Family, he has power, he has authority to forgive sin. I want you to see, he then has the authority over the dignity of individuals. And family, I think that this is one of the amazing, precious truths of salvation. You see, in, in the Jewish world, whatever you were, that's what you were. There's no restoration. If you were a tax collector, you are a tax collector for the rest of your life. If you are a prostitute now and you sought forgiveness, you're a prostitute for the rest of your life. There is no changing reputation. Isn't that wonderful that we have a Savior that transforms lives? And all of a sudden, God looks down and says, Hey, tax collector Matthew, I want you to join my team. Huh, I want you to be part of the, the 12 that once we get rid of the betrayer Judas, you 11 are going to go out and change the world because you're going to tell the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ and I'm going to empower you first through my resurrection and then the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And God took that transformed life and he shows you and I that there is no one who comes under the privilege of the gospel and the Holy Spirit that doesn't have the privilege of being transformed. And everyone's story has a chance to be rewritten. So today we, we get a chance now to come in and see these final three vignettes. I hope you were noticing, starting last week with Kevin, that there's going to be a little pushback. As Jesus declares his authority, people are going to be looking back and saying, wait a second, wait a second, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? So as he says, your sin's forgiven, the Pharisees are already in their mind going, who, who do you think he is? Jesus reads their mind. Questions. They're right to even think that. And goes on. We saw in the transformed live, Jesus is asked, who are you to sit with tax collectors and sinners? He says, I'm the physician. I come here to heal. So we now get to see this pushback. And anyone usually taking authority is going to have a little bit of pushback. And so I want you to notice as we, we look at that pushback today, but I want you to notice here in the, the, what will be the sixth of all of these statements of his authority, I want you to see his authority 
to destroy false piety. We're going to read in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And, and as I say each and every week, I love you to have your Bibles there just in your lap. It may give you a, a reference point later on in the week. And even though Scripture will be here on the screen and, and we want you to use it to your benefit, uh, there's just nothing like maybe marking a little spot so that later on in the week when that, that question begins to noodle in your head, that you have a chance to come back and look at it. So follow along as we begin in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Family, in, in, the minds of the, in the minds of the Jewish community at that time, the Pharisees, John's disciples, and now this burgeoning Jesus movement are all kind of seen as, as if you will, conservative Jews vying for the hearts and minds of the people. Now, the, the first should be somewhat easy for you and I. And, and, and in fairness, I can't get their thinking. John's disciples. John's disciples should rather be easy. They respond to John's preaching. They enter the waters of baptism there in the Jordan River. They come out, and John has been saying, there's the Messiah, go worship him. And yet, there's still a number of disciples that are following John. And the question is, is why? What's, what's the issue here? Their, their leader is pointing to Jesus, go there. And yet they don't. And we find clear in the Acts, statements concerning John's disciples spread as far as Ephesus, as they continued to be adherents of John's Gospels. But they didn't go to Jesus. So they're the odd group in this three-person three struggle. The second group is the Pharisees. Family, I, again, I, I wish we could have had an ABF just to explain kind of the history of the Pharisees. They're a wonderfully weird lot. All right? And, and by the time Jesus is, is on center stage, they're just weird. See, they trace their history all the way back to the Maccabean Wars. The Maccabean Wars were just an incredible moment in Israeli history. As the, the Greek Empire wanted to destroy the cultural existence of the Jews. And the Pharisees siding with the Maccabean leaders. 
their name either meaning holy ones or separated ones, really called the community to righteousness, obedience to the law, adherence to the cultural communities of the Old Covenant. And they did a marvelous job in the beginning. But as their, their love for Scripture became more and more oppressive, over the 200-year span, we are just left with a group of people who do not love their God, but are moralistic, legalistic, and oppressive. We'll see some more of them in a moment. And then we have the followers of Christ. Now, we, we see the question answered. Why do they fast and you don't? Fasting was never really a, a monstrous part of, of the year of the Jewish nation. Matter of fact, Leviticus tells them that they were only to fast, or they only had to fast one day in the entire year. It was the Day of Atonement the day when the sins of Israel would be forgiven for this next year. And it was a very important and a somber day. And so in, in recognition of that sobriety, they took the day off from eating, and it was a 24-hour fast. The Pharisees made it into an art form. They fasted every Monday. They fasted every Thursday. Now forgive me, I'm on a keto diet, and I'm okay with that, but two days of fasting, forget it. They would take two days, each and every week. But they also wanted everybody to know they were on a fast. So they would come in, they wouldn't comb their beard, they wouldn't, they wouldn't comb their hair, they, they left on yesterday's clothes, or they got the wrinkled ones out of the, out of the washing basket. And they just wanted everybody to know by their disheveled look, we're fasting, doesn't it look horrible? but we're godly because we're fasting. And two days a week, they would show the world we're really godly because we fast. And so they come to Jesus and they want to know, well, why don't you do that? They're the spiritual ones and here you are, you're acting like it's a party. And Jesus simply returns to them and says, yeah, in essence, it is a party. It's a wedding. And family, he uses this wedding illustration. A wedding is a time to feast. What guest at a wedding would look at the bridegroom, the husband, and in the middle of the celebration say, I'm on a fast, I can't eat. And yet all the delicacies of the table are just laid out. Come, enjoy. This is our day of celebration. Be a part of it. It's a party. Who would not imbibe? Who would not take in all that there is to offer? Who wouldn't enjoy the privilege of being at a feast? And so Jesus lays this idea before them. Their refusal is a sign of their disbelief. And family, I want you to understand the wedding picture is a very provocative picture. If you will, Jesus is at least psychologically pointing right in the middle of their chest. This is a provocative picture. It takes us back to the Old Testament 
when the family of Israel had one husband. The family of Israel had one lover, and that one lover is God on high. Jesus is identifying with that husband. And family, Jesus will say very clearly that I am that husband. A little later on, as we see John 8, in John 8, Jesus will look before the gathered Jews in Jerusalem, and he will give us one of the great marvelous statements of his entire ministry when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And he takes the very name of Yahweh, the intimate, expressed name of covenantal tie to Israel itself. And so family, again, if you ever want to question the authority here, he is making it very clear. I will determine, I will determine what's spiritual and what's not. I will determine what's pietistic. I will determine what's worshipful. And so as we see them, we see the contest. And he finishes off with two parables. Uh, and these two parables, these two parables get misused all over the place in the Christian community. Anytime the, that young generation wants to whine to the older generation, we pull out old wineskins and new wine, don't we? Every time there's a change in the church, we pull this out. And it's a, sometimes a bully pulpit. But you need to understand and be aware of context here. The two parables. The first, torn cloth. The second, new wine in old skins is about Jesus and traditional Judaism. Family, Jesus is the new patch. And Jesus is the new wine. He cannot be patched or added to your life as he's just one more part of your arranged living. He teaches with authority. He heals with authority. He commands even with authority. He forgives sins with authority. He restores life and gives new reputation with authority. So the question here is posed, not whether disciples make room for Jesus in their already full lives, but rather if they will submit to a new understanding where Jesus is the entire cloth in which they will find covering. If Jesus is the wine and they're willing to surrender their lives in such a way that what is new can be used to transform their lives, will they accept the gospel in their lives? And so, family, we're left with this real, this real statement, this, this strong effort on his part to ask not only they in their day, but through the Spirit's work in the Gospel of Mark in our day. Is Jesus something that you add into your life? He's just one more part of the calendar. He's your Sunday responsibility. He might even be your devotion a couple of times a week. 
Is Jesus the very priority of your existence? So much so that He is the cloth that covers. So much so that as He comes into to you, you are willing to be stretched and pulled and tugged in such a way that His work is transforming in your life. Because ultimately what He's saying is, he will not be partial. He will not be an add-on. He and He alone is the determiner of what is worshipful and what is godly and what is holy about your living. I want you to notice not only does He look at false piety, He attacks secondly His authority is going to be over Sabbath behavior. So if you will, let's take up the story in verse 23, he says, On Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as, he made their way, or as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but for the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath." Family, in the Jewish world, potentially, if you ask them what's the most important of the Ten Commandments, in fairness to you this morning, many of them would say to keep the Sabbath. All right? The Sabbath is everything. If you know anything in, in Jewish culture, you know that at sundown on Friday night, the world stops. It takes on new meaning, new authority, new expectations, new rules, new ideas, and new identity. And it does not cease until sundown on Saturday. And on sundown on Saturday, everything explodes. New life. We go back to living. But this is a different time. The command is, very, is tied even to God, in that He rested on the seventh and used this day as an example to their behavior. Sabbath, Sabbath day rest extended to the Jewish nation, not only to they personally, but to their slaves and to their animals. And you could almost even add their vegetation because nothing could get cut, plucked, or pulled on the Sabbath. The, the, the Mishnah, if you will, the commentary that interprets what's supposed to happen in the Bible or the very words of the Bible. The rabbis pulled out 39 classes of work that, that couldn't be done on the Sabbath. It, it ruined the Sabbath if you did them. And, and some of them would be very hard for Jackson Countyans. They couldn't hunt or butcher on the Sabbath. Boy, that'd ruin your deer season, wouldn't it? 
But some of them were just very unusual. So you couldn't tie a knot on the Sabbath. Moms, can you imagine what your vocabulary would be like on Sunday morning? You couldn't say, honey, tie your shoe. Honey, honey, I told you. Your tie came unloose. Tie your shoe. The little kid could look back and say, Mom, I'm just obeying the law. And let it drag until he tripped. Not only that, you couldn't sew but one stitch. And my favorite of all of them, you couldn't write more than one letter. What would that do to sermon notes in the synagogue on Sabbath? Honey, what's this P represent? I forget. Because that's all you'd get. One, one letter for the symbolic of the whole morning. The Sabbath. The Sabbath was ultimately crippling. First to design it to protect until the point it just crippled man. And Jesus gives an explanation with drama. First he comes in and he explains that Family, there were, there were times, there were issues, even in the Old Testament, when, when the law, the words that God had given, needed an asterisk. And here, the table of presence, 12 loaves of bread, of bread set aside for the priests, David needed in dire consequence for food, distributed it to his men, and we have, a, we have no word in the Bible, that what he did ethically is sinful. Jesus uses that as an example. And so, just like he says a moment ago in Scripture when he says, but I say, Jesus now takes dominance as the interpretation of the design of the Sabbath. And so not only can he say, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. I want you to understand in saying that the command, the interpretation, and the implementation are all in the hands of Jesus himself. And he ultimately is saying, I'm in charge of the Sabbath. And can you imagine a Jewish community who valued Sabbath worship to that degree? Who went to the effort to control behavior to that degree? to hear one man come out and say, I control. I own. I'll tell you what Sabbath is like. And then he says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Notice, if you will, the third of this morning. Jesus Christ is going to express his authority to restore Sabbath's purpose. And we see it in the healing of the man with the withered hand. Join with me as we begin in Mark chapter 3. Again, he entered the Sabbath. Or excuse me, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. 
And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at, the hardness, at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. So family, we've just talked about Sabbath restrictions. One of the rules uh, of Sabbath actually applies to first aid. You could only supply first aid to keep the injury from worsening. You could never fix an injury. You could never help somebody over an injury. You could only sustain it, waiting for Sabbath to end in order to do something about it. So Jesus is using that as a backdrop. And he looks at the man with the withered hand and calls him up. Now, again, please, I want you to use your, your spiritual imagination. Imagine, if you will, a man who's come each and every Sabbath and his hand is withered. You, you, you know he's uncomfortable with it. It's just such a part of his being now. Often... There are times when your eyes can't go away from the withered hand. And so you're looking and having a conversation, and pretty soon, though you're looking at his eyes and you're staring at him, quickly down to his hand and back up. Tell me we all haven't done that. We look again and back up. Jesus called this very man up to the very front of the Sabbath. So not only is he struggling with being a man with a withered hand. But Jesus is now calling him out and putting him front and center. So I want you to understand and imagine, if you will, hope tinged with embarrassment. Do I really have to be up there? He's pointing right at my withered hand. He's making a point of my illness. I can't believe he's doing this to me. But on the other hand, he's sitting there hoping, wow, I know all the healings that he's done. I know what he's done. I know what he can do. I know his power. And so this juxtaposition going on in the mind of this individual as he comes forward. And we hear John, excuse me, we hear Jesus say, is it right to do good on the Sabbath? And he adds, to save life or to kill. And there in the silence, Jesus finally, in frustration, says, stretch out your hand. And as he stretched out his hand, it's brand new. So family, Jesus makes it very clear the first part of that question. Is it right to save life on Sabbath? And the answer is irrevocably yes. Yes, you do good in worship. You make people's lives better in worship. You do what you can in worship to make God look good and the God who is good to work in the lives of people. But he answers us, he asks and raises a second question. Is it right to save life or to kill? Family, that's an entirely different question, isn't it? This isn't a, a, a question of hyperbole, like he's making a poetic statement of one truth and then heightening it with a second. He's changing everything. He says, is it right to kill on the Sabbath? 
Have you noticed how this vignette ends? The Pharisees went out and immediately held contest with Herodians, or counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So family, the very one who could heal also, like the moment he read their minds in the forgiveness of sins, I believe recognizes that moment again also. And their anger is burning such that under the pretense of worshiping God, they're debating how to kill him. And he raises the question right in front of them. And as they close in prayer, they run right out to the Herodians, individuals who are the very opposite of the Pharisees. The Herodians are ungodly and unidentifying Jews. They are Jews ethnically, but they want all of the cultural identity of Greeks and Romans. And the Pharisees, who would have nothing to do with them, run to the Herodians to plan the death of Jesus. And Jesus shows them the emptiness of their souls. Jesus shows them the emptiness of their position and their unwillingness to forgive and submit to God on high. They wanted to murder Jesus Christ. So family, what I, what I want you to see, what we, we should see in these eight vignettes telling us of the authority of Jesus Christ is that He expects our complete allegiance. See, against the backdrop of His right to rule is a mercy and a patience that's incredibly divine. Family, no, no human would have offered such patience. Forgive me, but if any of you as a mom and a dad asked your child to, to do a point of behavior, a chore, a yes or no, a statement that demanded a response, and you didn't get the response from that young one, patience would not be something that your mindset would be clear on you would expect action, correct? Jesus Christ shows them his authority and he asks for a willing, humble submission and it's not given. Family, every one of you who know the Gospels know that that's how it will go all the way through to the time in absolute and sheer rebellion. The Pharisees who had planned his death here, ultimately will plan an attack that is successful. They will kill the Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's mercy and his patience is incredible. That mercy and patience carries on to the very point where he rises again in authority and dynamic affirmation of every claim he made and then continues in mercy and patience, offering the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone from the day of Pentecost to the very moment that we sit in church today. And he reminds us, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, remember, I'm not an add-on. Remember, 
I'm not something that you just put into your life like you would put a new tool, like you'd put a, a, a new piece of advice that's good for you. I am preeminent. I am the authority of your life. But he does so with a marvelous kindness and a patience that in fairness is stunning. In family, he offers the gospel of Jesus Christ on one sense to a waiting world, but in reality to a world that wants that salvation on its terms. Jesus Christ has already explained those terms. He is king. And there will come a day that he will rightly stand and proclaim his right to rule. But until then, we have the chance to well represent him to a world that desperately needs to see the transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So family, whether it's your neighbors or your friends, we want to encourage you to never forget your circle card responsibilities. You, you have a group of people that you love. Neighbors, friends, family. That should always be part of your prayer concerns to share Jesus Christ too. There should be people in your life that you recognize as prodigals. They've, they've walked away. Could be your children. Could be other valuable friends in your life. And, and you should have them as a prayer concern to your life. You should always be looking forward for those moments when you just can't believe Jesus Christ plopped that conversation right down. And you have a chance to express your love loyalty to the Savior who transformed your life. So as we see these vignettes, we see a great reminder. Will we always, always recognize the Savior Jesus Christ and His impact in our lives? Father in heaven, I'd ask that, that you'd be with us. Dear God, help us to remember we're, we didn't come to church to check a box. Father, we didn't, check a, we didn't come to church this morning because the NFL teams didn't line up with our favorites. Father, we came to church today because we wanted to express a thankfulness to a Savior and a Lord who transformed us. Father, we were tax collectors. We were sinners. And we're redeemed. Father, we were tax collectors. And we were sinners. And we now know the righteousness of God. Father, I'd ask that you'd watch over this week. Allow us to well represent our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.